Dr. Luke begins the book of Acts by telling us that this is the work that Jesus continues to do through the power of the Spirit and through the formation of his church. We pick up this book right after the resurrection of Jesus where he gathers together his disciples and he gives them a mission. He says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And the Holy Spirit is going to empower you. He's going to come upon you to give you the ability, the power to fulfill this beautiful mission. After Jesus promises the power of the Holy Spirit, he delivers on this promise. In Acts chapter 2, there's 120 believers worshiping in the upper room when the Holy Spirit descends on them at this, at this event that we call Pentecost. And at that point, the church is born. The church grows to become this community, this beautiful community, where people sell their possessions and give to anyone who has need. And then sort of an interesting thing happens in the book of Acts. The church starts getting persecuted. That persecution drives the church out. And we see Philip in in Acts chapter 8 share the gospel in Samaria, and the church in Samaria is born. In Acts chapter 10, we see the Gentiles are included in the mission of God. In Acts chapter 11, we see this church at Antioch birthed. It's a multi-ethnic church that signifies the manifold beauty of God and the fact that his gospel is for every person. Antioch becomes this hub, this sending church where the Apostle Paul comes to teach and, and that church sends the Apostle Paul out on his first missionary journey. He goes all over the Mediterranean, planting churches, equipping leaders, sharing the gospel, and this movement of God that started in Jerusalem, spread to Judea, to Samaria, is starting to spread to the ends of the earth. this series, this study of the book of Acts, the movement, because we've been tracing the movement of Jesus through the work of the Spirit and the formation of his church. But we've also called it the movement because we hope that this study will encourage us to move, that God will stir some things in us that will change us and cause us to look at the beautiful horizon that he has, not only for us as individuals, but for us as a church, and to start to dream, what might our chapter of the book of Acts be? What verse might he invite us to write as we follow the same spirit, as we're part of his same intention of building his church? What might God have for us to do?
we filmed that, and uh, I pushed the button to get on the train, and we timed it exactly wrong, so when I pushed the button, the train took off. First take, I'm like, take two, don't, don't know what that implies, but uh, take two. Anyway, uh, you'll see that blooper coming out uh, sometime on the interwebs soon. Uh, that sort of invites you uh, into the story that we've been um, retelling through the scriptures and asking the Spirit to stir in us exactly what we said at the very end, that, that God would stir in us what chapter he might have us invite us by the same Spirit involved in the same church to write. And so we go to this beautiful book, uh, Dr. Luke's retelling of the history of the early church, asking the Holy Spirit to stir in us um, a movement of his that only he can do that he invites us to be a part of. Will you pray with me? King Jesus, we love you. We lift you high. We honor you. We, we lift you up as God in this place this morning. As we go to your scriptures, would you reveal to us Jesus? Would you give us a greater picture of who you are, of what you've done, um, and in doing so, what you're inviting us, your children, your church, to be a part of? It's in the beautiful name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Amen. I don't know about you, but, but we sing that song. This is the art of celebration, knowing we're free from condemnation, that boldly we approach your throne. And something in my heart, I don't know about you, but something in my heart just leaps and goes, yes and amen. I'm glad I wore my dancing shoes today. No grip on the bottom of them so we can get, I mean, there's just something about that song that stirs my heart and my soul. Um, and, and here's why, because it, it paints for us a picture, a beautiful picture, a real picture of what God is like, longing to redeem, inviting home, saying, come chase after me, seek me and find me. I'm good and I long to not only know, but to be known by you. In 1961, uh, the author A.W. Tozer um, now famously wrote this statement. He said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. He wrote this in, in his book, Knowledge of the Holy. The most important thing about us. Interesting statement, isn't it? Because, I mean, if we were to try to narrow that down, what's the most important thing about us? I don't know if this would be the top of most of our lists. My view, my picture, my, if you will, my theology of what God is like. I don't know if that's at the top of our list, but what, what Tozer said is this is the most important when it, when it comes down to it. The most important thing about you is, is not, is not um, the things that you do, is not um, the, how good of a dad you are, how good of a mom you are, how good of a son you are, daughter or student, athlete, fill in the blank. The most important thing about you, he says, is what comes to your mind when you think about God. It's an interesting statement, isn't it? I mean, I, mean, I sort of want to push back and go, um, are, are we going a little bit too far with that tozer? And then he pushes back and says, I'm way smarter than you, Paulson, so just take it, right? Uh, are we going too far with that? Is it true? Is he right? And if so, why? Why? Is the most important thing about us in the very core of our being what we think about when we think about God? 
I want to propose to you that, that Tozer's right. The very most important thing about you and the core of your very soul and your being is what comes to your mind, what you think about when you think about God. And here's why. Because what you think about, when you think about, when you picture, what you believe, when you think about God, shapes everything about you. I want to propose to you this morning that it's sort of like our view of God um, is sort of like a lens that we wear. Is, is sort of glasses that we put on that shape the entire world, the way that we view everything. Um, these look good on me? I can't even read with them on. I'm like, this shapes everything about us. So if we have a wrong view of God, we have a wrong view of God's world. We have a wrong view of God's people. We have a wrong view um, of ourselves. But if we have a right view of God, if, if we're able to take off some of the maybe cultural, real, I don't want to walk off the stage, if we want to take off some of the cultural lenses that we've been given, some of the religious lenses that we've been given, and, and if we're willing to go to the scriptures and put on the lens that the scriptures give us of what God's like, it starts to really change everything because the God that you know and the God that you trust and the God that you believe, your theology determines the world that you see and the way that you live. It determines everything about you. See, I think Tozer was right. It's the most important thing about you. It's the most important thing about me. Some of us, we have these lenses that we put on that say, um, God, is, God is angry. He's mad. And so it influences the world that we see. We have these lenses, some of us, that we put on where, where, where we, we have this conviction that God is distant, that he's sort of ambivalent, that he doesn't care much about what goes on down here. Um, some of us, we have these lenses that we put on where, where um, our lens is that God doesn't even really exist, that all that's here is just the material world, what you see around you. We're sort of here by accident, that, that all of those are lenses that we put on and they influence, they change. In many ways, they determine the world we see and they shape the way that we live. So here's the a, here's a big idea this morning. If you want to have a big life, you've got to have a big God. If you want to have a big life, you've got to have a big God. And a lot of us, we try to build our lives on sort of the, the, the tip of a pin, the head of a pin. And we want, a, we want a big life. We want a meaningful life. We want a life that makes a difference, that has purpose, that embraces love, that, that makes a difference. We want those things, but we try to build it on a God that, in many ways, isn't reflected in the scriptures. And, and my conviction would therefore be, isn't true. See, your view of God shapes the world that you see, and it shapes the life that you live. And so here's what we're going to look at this morning. We're going to look at Paul on his missionary journey. We're going to pick up as he enters into the city of Athens. Um, Athens was one of the cultural, if not the cultural hubs of the day. 
and at one point was a city that was really powerful and prominent as far as its politics, but it really, it shifted away from that, and it was known for the arts, it was known for intellect, it was known for education, and Paul's going to enter in, and he's going to see a people whose view of God was so small that it shaped the way that they lived and the things that they did, and he's going to speak into that. He's going to speak into their lens, their world, the things that they think about God, the things that they believe about God. And he's going to say, can I, can I give you a fuller, truer picture of who God is? And that's so important because what you believe about God is the most important thing about you. Um, listen to the way Paul does this in Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17, starting in verse 16 says this. Now, while Paul was waiting for them, these are, he's waiting for his traveling companions at Athens. His spirit was provoked. Now, just a quick time out. Um, the Greek word for this word provoked is, is um, synonymous with a storm coming. So inside of him, in his soul, he see that, sees Athens and, and it's like the wind starts to blow and the thunder starts to roll and the lightning starts to strike and there's something inside of him that just rises up and goes, this is wrong. This is wrong. Listen to him. His spirit was provoked within him. Why? As he saw the city was full of idols. Interesting. Um, most scholars will say that, that in Athens at this time, there was probably around 30,000 different gods that people bowed down and worshipped. 30,000. A famous historian is quoted as saying, um, it's easier to find a god in Athens than it is to find a man. Pretty bold statement, right? I mean, this is the picture. And Paul sees this. And something starts to turn in him. Why is that? Well, I think there's two reasons. One, he knows the living true God and he's jealous for people. He longs for people to know him also, to worship him, to not rob him of glory by bowing down to these insignificant little tiny gods, one. But the second reason he's so moved by this is because he knows that their view of God influences the life that they live. And a little view of God, a little God equates to a little life, but a big God equates to a big life. And so he goes, listen, the way that you've carved these wooden or, or stone idols and you bow down to them, that shapes who you become. Aren't you glad we're sort of beyond this? I mean, aren't you glad that over the last 2,000 or so years we've progressed beyond bowing down to little idols? Oh, wait, wait, wait. We haven't, newsflash. Right? We haven't. Um, we, may have, um, we may be a little bit more refined or sophisticated in the way that we go about worshiping idols, but I can assure you, we're still bowing down to them. I tried to think, what are some of the cultural idols that we see every day all around us, in, specifically in Colorado? Um, I think independence is one of our idols, we're a very independent state. We can make it on our own. We can do it. Um, I think comfort is one of our idols, one of my idols, comfort. I mean, I like my warm house. I like my fluffy bed. I bought a new pillow yesterday because my other one wasn't firm enough. Comfort's one of my idols. Six dollars, but still. <laughs> it's one of my, 
Um, family, family, especially as you start to move sort of further towards the suburbs, this um, raising kids turns into sort of sport, right? How good, how good can our kids be? How good can their grades be? Um, they need to go to this school, that school. They need, they need to sort of fit the box and they need to be, these are things that I've noticed in my own soul. And so an idol isn't necessarily a bad thing. Hear me on that. An idol doesn't need to be a negative thing. An idol simply needs to be something that's on the throne of our hearts other than God. It can be a good thing that's made an ultimate thing. And so Paul says, I look out and I see these idols and it stirs something in me. It turns my soul into a storm because I know that the one true living God, one, deserves our worship. And two, when we see him, we take off the lenses that we've been given sometimes and we see him for who he is, it starts to change the way that we live also. And so he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews, verse 17, and the devout persons in, in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean, and, and this was sort of um, a sect uh, in the time that was, they're, they're, just think atheists, okay, who were out for pleasure. Um, and Stoic philosophers, the Stoic were the pantheists. Um, not that God is everywhere, but that God is everything, okay? This is who he's interacting with. And he also, and he conversed with them, they conversed with him also. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? <laughs> um, man, I'm in good company, okay? <laughs> Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities, and catch this, circle this, underline this, star this, because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. At the very core, so he's going to end with this also, at the very core of Paul's message, and he says, the lens that you see God through at the very core of it needs to be the fact that Jesus came, clothed, God clothed in humanity, lived, died, and rose from the dead. That shapes everything. If that isn't part of the lens we wear, our God is too small. And they took him and they brought him to the Areopagus saying, may May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So this was sport for them. Let's, let's interact around ideologies, around religion, philosophy. Let's sit down and let's chat. Let's talk. Okay, so just a quick overview, and then we're going to jump into the sermon. Quick overview, really quick. This is one of the most famous sermons in the book of Acts, okay? One of the most famous sermons in the book of Acts. People have dissected it. They've tried to make methodologies out of it, um, and, and they, it's been probably the most studied sermon that we have in the book of Acts. Two, this is not a complete recording of what Paul said at Mars Hill, the Areopagus. It's not everything he said. But I think what Dr. Luke does is he tries to give us some high points so that we can understand what the core conviction of Paul's message was to these pagan um, Greek philosophers at the Areopagus. Um, finally, I, I would say at the onset that a lot of people have tried to take this and say, and say, well, see, the goal of Christian preaching is to find common ground and to use common ground and um, to sort of find what we have in common and make much of that. Now, now here's what you're going to see. 
you're going to see Paul, who indeed does find some touch points. He finds some common ground. His point, though, is not to draw out common ground. His point is to draw out Jesus, okay? Now, that's the goal of all preaching. He, he, gets, a, he gets a foothold through um, quoting some of their philosophers and their poets of the day, but his goal is not, hey, let's talk about poetry, and let's talk about the things we have in common, and let's hold hands and sing kumbaya, Okay? That's not his goal at Mars Hill. His goal at Mars Hill is let's point to Jesus, let's make much of Jesus, let's correct the wrong view of God that we have that has resulted in idolatry, and let's take those lenses off and let's point to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. His name is Jesus. We know he is the way of God because he was dead three days in the ground, rose from the dead, walked out, and ascended to heaven. Okay? That's where you can go. Amen. Right? We don't need to be a charismatic church to say amen every once in a while, okay? okay? Amen. So that's the overview, and I'd like to invite us now into some of the things that he points out about God. Now remember, remember, your view of God shapes your view of the world, and it determines the life that you live. It's the most important thing about you. And so here's the way he continues. So Paul, verse 22, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. This is sort of a backhanded compliment. This is, I, I, I'm walking through the city, and I notice you're very religious people. Now, if you go and dig a little bit in the Greek, um, it literally means uh, you're sort of superstitious. Got a lot of gods going on. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to an unknown, lowercase g, God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. Here's the first thing Paul is going to say as he starts to give them a new lens. He says, all right, take those lenses off. The lens that says we need to create 30,000 different idols just to cover all of our bases and include in one of those, just in case we missed any, an unknown God. Here's what he says about the true God. God is knowable. God is knowable. He says, let me, let me introduce you to him. <laughs> See, the pagans, for the pagans, the gods dwelt on Mount Olympus. They were um, remote. They were removed from humanity. And in order to try to get to them, you needed to sort of go through an obstacle course, as it were, in hopes of approaching the divine. And what Paul says is, no, 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 no. God is present. God is here. Let me, let me introduce you to him. He's knowable. He's personal. He's present. He's here. So he pushes back. Will you look up at me for just a second? He pushes back on this idea that God is distant, that he's somewhere else, that we need to go through the obstacle course. And he goes, no, 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 you don't need to do that. You, you can know the one true living God. That's great news. That's great news, friend. I am... Um, when I, when I was in California teaching last weekend, I had the chance to sneak away for um, a few hours in the afternoon and go to a coffee shop where they actually had wireless internet at the camp. They didn't. Um, and so I was gathered around my computer, uh, and I got to FaceTime with my family. 
And it was so fun because Kelly was sitting on the couch, you know, and she had her phone and all the kids were trying to like jockey for position and, and, and say, you know, dad, this is what I did today. And dad, this is what was fun. And dad, this is what mom did. Can you believe that? No, I'm just kidding. They didn't say that. But, <laughs> but for me, it was this picture of on the other end going, oh, I love to interact with my kids. I love it. You know what I love about the God of the Bible is he loves that too. He's going, I'm not playing hide and seek. I'm not distant. When you try to FaceTime me, the connection isn't broken. I'm there. I'm present. I love you. And he starts to push back, Paul does, against this God that the Athenians had built up that influenced the lens that they had of the world that said, God is somewhere else. God is distant. God doesn't care. He's out there somewhere, maybe looking down, maybe not. But he goes, no, God is knowable. And you know what? There's a difference between knowing God and knowing about God, yes? Huge difference. This God doesn't just want to be known about. He wants to be known. Now notice how Paul says. What Paul does is he gives both a gracious statement. Hey, I see you have a God to an, an altar to an unknown God. Let me unpack that for you. That's graciousness. He also is very direct. It's not let's find what we have in common and sing kumbaya over it. Okay, It's this God, capital G God is knowable, one. Second, here's what he goes on to say, verse 17, or sorry, chapter 17, verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in it. So, so in contrast to the God you made as you sort of carved your wooden idol or chipped away at a piece of stone who, who teeters and totters in your home and you bow down to it and you give him food and you give him a house and you give him everything he needs in order to be God, he goes, all right, I'm going to paint a picture for you that's totally different than that. The God who made the world and everything in it, being the Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and what? Everything. Sort of all-encompassing. And here's what he says. Here's what he says. God is both the creator and the sustainer. Because an exercise together. Let's do an exercise together. I want you to just take a deep breath. Okay, from the scriptures, here's what you can know. The very fact that you can do that means that God is. That he is not only the creator, but as Paul writes to the church at Colossae, he's, he's before all things and in him all things hold together. That if God isn't, if he isn't present, if he isn't good, if he isn't holding it all together, sustaining the world you see around you, it flies off into orbit, is gone, is done. What Paul says is God not only is knowable and present, but he's the creator, sustainer. He leaves no room for us to say that God created and then removed himself from his creation, which is deism. Okay? He leaves no room for us to say that all we see around us and all, or all that there is around us is just the material world. He leaves no room for that. He says, no, this God, this God is the creator and sustainer of it all. And I love this in verse 25. He adds in something that's really applicable for you and I. He goes, and he doesn't need anything from you. 
in direct contrast to the God you need to feed and the God you need to keep happy, and the God you need to appease, and the God you need to serve, and the God you need to carry around with you? Paul goes, no, this God is different. Now, here's why that's beautiful, great, wonderful news for us. And see, a lot of us have this lens that if we don't show up, God doesn't either. And if we can't get the job done, then God's hands are tied. And here's what Paul does. He goes, let's let's just take those off for a second. Does God use people for his name and his glory? Yes. Were you designed to play a part in that? Yes. Does he need you in order to accomplish anything? No. So why does he invite you to be a part of it? This is great news. This is great news because he's free from needing you to be a part of it. He invites you to be a part of it because he loves you and he's for you. My son helped me put up our Christmas lights this year, okay? It was more work to do it with him. <laughs> Giving him high fives the whole time. Hey, good job, buddy. Way to work. Way to check that cord and I go back and recheck it, right? Like when he's not looking, hey, go get that and read, right? I think a lot of times my service to God is, is this, it's the picture of the same thing. But why does he invite us to be a part? Because he loves us, because he knows that the thing that makes the human heart soars to be part of something bigger than ourselves, and the mission of God is bigger than you, friend. But because he doesn't need you, he's able to love you instead of use you. You know, your view of God determines a lot about you. But if you think he needs you, you'll think he's using you. If you know he doesn't need you, you can rest in the fact that he loves you changes everything. Here's what he goes on to say. Verse 26, and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place. Just a quick time out. Look up at me for a second. God had a hand in where you were born, the home that you were born into. He had a hand in why, why would he do that? Great, great question. Let's keep reading. That they should seek God and perhaps feel, or I think the King James is grope, their way towards him and find him, yet he is not far from any one of us. Here's the third thing that we'd say about God from this passage. And Paul, trying to correct their view of God because he knows that their view of God is the most important thing about them. It shapes the way that they see the world and it shapes the life that they live. And so he's going to speak into that and he's going to say, your view of God is way too small. You've got to zoom out. God has a hand in it all. Dr. Wenning did a great job last week uh, talking about the fact that God's providence is both personal and powerful. We believe in the sovereignty of God, in his power, in his hand, in his goodness. Now, here's what sovereignty means. Just because there's a lot of bad versions of sovereignty, okay? Here's what sovereignty means. Sovereignty means that God has the complete authority and freedom to do exactly as he pleases at any point in time. Sometimes as he pleases is, I'm going to allow, for whatever reason, only he knows that, I'm going to allow some things to happen that in heaven won't happen, right? Where where God's will is executed perfectly, there's some things down here that don't happen there. Yes? Please tell me. Yes? Okay. 
And so sometimes he says, okay, even though I have the freedom, the authority to, to, to do exactly as I please, what I please right now is to let this happen for a bigger, grander purpose. But here's, don't miss Paul's point. He says, God is over all of history. The Greek mind, the Greek thought was, we're masters of our own domain, we're authors of our own fate. They probably would have loved the American dream, right? But what, what, what Paul says is, no, 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 our, our, our version of God, our view of God has to be bigger. He's over it all. He's over it all. So two things I want to say. One, you are not an accident. You might be a surprise to your parents, but you're not an accident to God. We'd always planned on having a third child. We just didn't plan on having him or her right while we were moving to Colorado, okay? Praise be to God for very welcome surprises, right? But, but it wasn't a surprise to him. Reed wasn't a surprise to him. None of you are. He determined the, the places, the times where you would be born so that he would place you in the exact place so that you would reach out, it says, to grope out, to grope and to find God, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. You're not an accident. Number two, you're not a robot. You're not an accident, one. You're not a robot, two. Listen to the tension in this passage, okay? Because typically, the pendulum swings from either one side to the other, we're either really strong on God's sovereignty, which sometimes um, leads us to determinism, um, or we're really strong on quote-unquote free will, which leads us to having a really small view of God. So listen to what this verse does. It corrects both of those in saying God had a hand in the family you were born into, the place you were born, the time you were born. One, that's sovereignty, yes? So that you would reach out, grope around as though in the dark, and find God because he's not far from any one of you. He has this tension. God determines the times and places so that people would reach out and they would find him. He can't escape either one of those in the passage. Praise God. Praise God. I think a low view of God's sovereignty has led many people to have a pretty dismal view of what it looks like to trust God. Uh, I can remember we were sitting in the hospital waiting room with my mom as she was going to get a biopsy on her brain. And, and we really, as a family, believe, I gave a message a while back, worship is our weapon, and we're, as a family, we really, we've embraced that. Um, that's one of our fight songs, and it's just our theme. And so in the hospital waiting room, we had this little MP3, little iPod, and we were playing um, a song by Chris Tomlin called Sovereign. And it, for us, it was this declaration that, God, we don't know how this road ends, but we know that you're not only at the end of the road, but you're with us in it all. We're going to claim, we're going to stand on the reality that you work all things together for the good of those who love you and are called according to your purpose. And we had a woman who was sitting right next to us in the waiting room. She's, what song is that? And so we told her. And she started to unpack her story for us. Why she was in that hospital waiting room. And you could see this longing that she had in the human soul to know that God is bigger than us. 
that he has complete freedom to step in. He has complete freedom to do exactly as he in his sovereignty knows is best and is good. The question is, will we trust him? Here's, here's, the, here's the second thing that Paul says in this passage, and just pick up with me in verse 28. It says, for, for in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said. And, and so he's not going to say, see, we have something in common. What he's going to say is, see, you say this, but you don't believe it. But I'm going to tell you it's true. For even some of your own poets have said, for we indeed are his offspring, Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think of the divine being as like gold or silver or stone or an image formed by by art or the imagination of man. Here's what he says. If we are the divine offspring, therefore God is our what? Father. Right? Which means, so so sometimes the lens that we wear as followers of Jesus is um, God is our father, but he's not yours. (laughs) And what Paul says is, no, no, God is our Father. And so what he does is the lens that we wear sometimes, it says we can look down on people for what they are, what they aren't, for the way that they talk, for the place that they were born, for whatever you fill in the blank. He goes, if we have a right view of God, we recognize that our fellow human being is created by the same creator and we're brothers and sisters. I love the way that Dr. Martin Luther King said it in his letter from Birmingham jail. He said this, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. We're caught in an inescapable network of mutuality, tied in a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. And friends, because we affirm God as Father, we must be willing to fight for the dignity of our fellow human beings. We're related. We're in this together. Sometimes our view of God is too small, though, to embrace that reality. Second thing I would say, point out, is that God is good, he's trustworthy, and he longs for you to view him as daddy, to know his heart, to hear his voice to trust him even when the world seems chaotic and the world seems out of control. Can I, just, can I just remind you, and this is all it is, is a reminder, you know this somewhere deep down, but we're really pretty small, yes? And we're really in control of very little, yes? I mean, as much as we want to choreograph and control our world, we're, we're small. One phone call can change anything. My, my family got one of those phone calls uh, last month. Someone in my family did. My uncle, who two weeks after, he had run a 100-mile race and finished second. Probably only two people finished, okay? But it's not... (laughs) Correction, two people entered, okay? Crazy. Finished second. Gets a call from the doctors that he has a very aggressive form of lymphoma. Can you imagine And if we don't have a view of God as sovereign one, but as father two, either we'll view that the world is out of control or that we'll think God is angry and mad at us and punishing us. And what Paul says is neither of those are true. He's bigger than it. He loves you. You can trust him. You can run to him. The psalmist says some trust in chariots and some trust in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord. 
our God. Finally, here's what he says. The, time, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. So all he's saying is um, God didn't punish sin with wrath and death immediately like he had the right to do because he's God. He commands all people everywhere to repent, as in to come home, because he's fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whose name is Jesus. Right, so the judge of the world is the risen, slain lamb. This is irony a little bit, okay? But the risen, slain lamb whom he has appointed, and all of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Bookend two. Let's start this party with Jesus walked out of the grave. And let's end it by the same Jesus who walked out of the grave is the judge of the world. You and I will stand before the throne of God someday to give an account for our life. The main question will be, what did you do with the risen lamb who was slain on your behalf? We get scared of that word judgment, and rightfully so when we understand who God is, but we have to remember that he's not only knowable, that he's a creator, sustainer, that he's sovereign. We also have to remember that he's father and that he's judge, and he, he loves you, friend. So he's saying, repent, as in come home, as in the glasses you had of God, the view you had of God that tainted everything you see, he's going, take those off. They're too small. Put on the bigger view of God. He will judge. In his love, in his goodness, you want him to judge. Can I just say, you want him to. You wouldn't want to live in a world where God didn't judge in his righteousness. You wouldn't. You think you do, but you wouldn't want to live there. So in his judgment, he starts to make right. He makes all things new and right and good. And the things that aren't of him, he burns off. And the things that are, he refines to make much of the glory of Jesus. It's interesting. Luke ends his chapter, ends his sermon by saying, some believed, some didn't. That's the reality of this morning. Unfortunately, I know some of you will walk out of here and you'll still have your lens of God. That can I say in all love and all honesty, it's just too small. It's too small to sustain you in the peaks and the valleys of life. It's too small to sustain you when that phone call comes and it will someday. It's too small to sustain us when our idols crack under our feet. It's too small. May I invite you back, invite you back to this God the scripture points to and says, oh, this God, he's knowable. You can know him, friend. He's the creator, sustainer of everything you see around you. <gasps> Take a breath. He gave it to you. It's a gift. You can rest. He's still in charge. He's sovereign over it all. He's the father to everyone you'll ever lay eyes on. You will, C.S. Lewis says, never meet a mere mortal, ever. And one day, 
we will stand before the slain, risen lamb for our lives to be tested by him. If your view of God doesn't include that, can I assure you it's not a view of God that we find in scripture. So maybe today we just lay down our other lenses and say back to Jesus, Jesus, we love you and we long to worship you and you alone as God. Let's pray. Father, sovereign Father, maker, creator, sustainer of it all, holy, perfect, true judge, we come before you and we say that we love you. We long for a work of your spirit in our hearts and in our lives that would allow us to take off some of the lenses that we have of you that are um, just way too small and make our lives also way too small. To embrace a biblical view of who you are, what you've done, and what you invite us to. That our lives might be purposeful, that they might make much of Jesus. Lord, give us a Give us a holy discontent for the idols that we see in our own lives, in our culture. And Lord, may we speak truth into those areas, truth of a big God, of a loving God, and a gracious Father. We love you. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.